Oh, Lord, Father, we thank you for uh, this fourth week of Advent. And Lord, Father, we thank you for the work that you have done, oh, Lord, Father. We thank you for the love that you have shown to us that continually uh, causes us to do your work, that continue on to help us to lay our foundations, oh, Lord. So, Lord, Father, we pray as we continue on to uh, study your word, that, Lord, Father, you impress upon our hearts uh, the beauty of your nature, the weight of your attributes, and Lord, Father, let us continue to be uh, amazed and continue to be uh, awestruck by it. And Lord, Father, we thank you and pray all this in your name. And we say, Amen. 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 So today I'll be talking about uh, God's everlasting love. Amen. Yeah, I couldn't think of a, a title, so I just pick it off the Bible's title. Right. <laughs> That's a lazy way about it. <laughs> yeah. So if you will turn to me to Romans uh, 8, verse 32, and that's where you'll see the title there. And in Romans 8, verse 32, this is the theme verse for today. It says, uh, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so, uh, so this week... Um, uh, I thought it was uh, it's appropriate since it's uh, fourth fourth week of Advent, and the theme it's love, so that's something to keep in mind about. And so this God, when we talk about the love of God, I think it's like really essential for the Christian experience, maturity, assurance, and glorifying God Himself. And I would say like a one thing it's uh, like we humans we are actually not very very creative like we cannot create anything ex nihilo. And for those who are not familiar, ex nihilo means out of nothing. So like you're creating something originally like nobody ever created for the first time. So I would say like a we, we as humans, like although we can do a lot of things, but we cannot create something out of nothing. We usually need some kind of a reference or some kind of a point of view. Somebody have created something. So you, what you usually hear artists say, say it's uh, when they create a piece of art, it's this inspired me. So, so similarly, I would say for love, it's very, very similar to we first experience love, then we can give love. So it's, it's sometimes challenging when you think about uh, families that don't have love. Like the, the kid that usually grows up, they usually are, are unable to express themselves in love. It's because like they haven't been shown love, and so it's difficult for them to know what the true extent of it is. But I guess the good news here is because we are Christians and because we have a God that loves us, He is the perfect model for us all. So even though you might have uh, not the best environment, but at least you will know that you have the best God. So like I, I guess coming into this, uh, when we talk about love, um, I'm also uh, kind of thinking about a little bit more about covenant theology nowadays. So when we talk about covenant theology, I think it's kind of interesting because I was listening to this uh, guy, RTS, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. His name is uh, Legan Duncan. It's, it's pretty good. I like him. So uh, he mentioned in covenant theology, uh, this theology, its main aim is to provide assurance for the Christian to know that God loves them. 
And that was kind of different. I was like, oh, never really thought about it this way, but I guess it makes sense. So if we go to the third slide, you'll see like, uh, let's bring in a little bit of this covenant theology themes. And some of you guys might have seen this before. The suzerain, the vessel, and the promises. And I think it's kind of interesting here because in the new covenant, what you'll see, it's the suzerain, it's God the Father. The vessel, the servant, is Jesus Christ. And the promises is the Holy Spirit. He's the ones that kind of govern and forces all these promises. And so the birth, death, and the resurrection of Christ is the fulfillment of the old and the enactment of the new covenant. And uh, in, I guess, uh, maybe I'll take some questions later. Yeah. So um, the word in, uh, for new the covenant in Greek is diatike. So you'll see this word appears in the New Testament about like 30-ish times. But I think what is significant here in the New Testament is every single time it appears, it talks about something significant. Wherever Christ, when Jesus uses it, he, did, he didn't really use it a lot of times, but wherever he uses it, he uses it in a very significant and very different way to introduce the new covenant and the passing of an old. And wherever Paul uses it, he uses it in a way to say it's the new covenant that we have obtained. So you see this theme of covenant, the new covenant, always goes throughout the whole New Testament. And of course, uh, I guess the word for, let me think about it a little bit. I think from covenant, you have to, a couple of Latin words. I think one of them is uh, testa, which you see it's a testament. The other one is, I think, pectum, which is pect. That's where the word pet comes from. And there's one more, uh, but I cannot remember, <laughs> unfortunately. But I think what's interesting here is also when we take a look at Matthew 26, verse 28. Let's take a look at the example here of how Jesus used this. And it's a very familiar passage that you will see. Like, uh, you, you probably hear this a lot, a lot of times. In Matthew 26, verse 38, 28, it says, For this is my blood of the covenant, diatheke, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I think th this is really interesting because when you think about where the Last Supper is held, it's actually held in a place that's like a, they call it, it's in Jerusalem, it's on the mountain, and this mountain is very significant, some of you guys might have heard of it, it's, uh, sometimes it goes by the name Mount Zion, sometimes it goes by the name Mount Moriah. And I think like, uh, God did not choose this place randomly. Because if you think about it, uh, if you think about where, what other things happen in Mount Moriah, it's really interesting. Because uh, if you take a look at Genesis 22, which is a familiar passage where Abraham goes up to this mountain to sacrifice Isaac. Like Isaac and that is Mount Moriah. And you see, this is the Abrahamic covenant where it's kind of fortune to a certain extent. It's the promises that came through this covenant. 
Isaac. It's in Mount Moriah. And I think the other significant one here is um, in 2 Samuel 24. Uh, in this passage, um, David took a census. And of course, he did something sinful. Uh, God began to punish the people. But what David did later was uh, because so many people died, like 70,000 people died already, he began to ask God, oh God, I need, I'll, I'll present you a sacrifice to, uh, for my sins. And the place that he presented this sacrifice was on Mount Moriah too. And also like uh, this place that he got in Mount Moriah, it's, um, it's where David's famous work co- comes out. Because he went to this guy and said, can I purchase your land? And this guy said, oh, no, no, I'll give it to you for free. But David later said, like, I will not give something to God that does not cost me anything. And that's the place that he purchased, Mount Moriah. And later we also see in Second Chronicles 3, uh, David's son, uh, Solomon, he also went up to this mountain, that place that David has bought, and he built Solomon's temple right at that spot. And you so I think it's really interesting because you see multiple covenants, they're all in this one mountain. And Christ chose this place to have the Last Supper in Mount Moriah. This is a significant meaning. It's like a, a, there's this merging of the old and the new together. Mm-hmm. And it's also interesting uh, that when you see in this whole scene where Christ has the Last Supper, usually where you have, where you have a place where you... I guess when you book a place like this, you usually have a servant to wash your feet. You have a basin there. You have the water there. But where's the servant? Like who ended up washing the disciples' feet? And it was Jesus. And there's also a significant meaning because in the new covenant, the person that comes to serve, it's not us. It's Christ that comes to serve us. I think that's something that's pretty interesting when you think about the new covenant. We are the ones that are being served. We are not serving God. God is serving us. And that, that is pretty interesting in itself. And I would say, like, uh, um, when you talk about uh, Christ coming with the new covenant, you, you see, like, a lot of times what you hear is people say, like, Christ fulfilled the old covenant. And when we talk about the old covenant, let's take a look at some of the main themes here. So when I look at the Adamic covenant, it's about dominion. That's one of the promises that God gives to Adam. And we'll look at the Noahic covenant. One of the main themes here is life. That God, he sent the rainbow so that he will not destroy man ever again. We'll look at the Abrahamic covenant. It's about land. God says to Abraham, I'll give you a land that's for your children. And when you take a look at the Mosaic Covenant, it's about law. It's about having the law in the hearts of people. And when you talk about the Davidic Covenant, it's about a throne, a king. So in this way, the main themes and their main promises and all this covenant is all fulfilled in Christ in different ways. And you see in dominion, Christ has dominion in Psalms 110, the most quoted verse in the whole New Testament. It says, I have put your enemies under your feet, right? And in the Noahic covenant, what did Christ come to do? He came to give us life, like a, to remove sin from us. And in the Abrahamic covenant, you talk about land, 
like God fulfilled this promise, the land promise through Christ and giving us a new earth and a new heavens in uh, Revelations. And we're talking about the Mosaic Covenant of the law. It says that God, like uh, the law shall be written in their hearts and they shall know me for themselves. And we're talking about the Davidic covenant. We're talking about the throne. And here Christ becomes the king of us all. So you see all this covenant, they're all fulfilled in Christ himself, in the coming of the new covenant. And of course, when we talk about the covenantal sin, it's never complete without the suzerain, without the vessel, and without the promises. So I think it's, it's, it's important as we kind of take a look at uh, God's love in this context. Because I, I think like, uh, later on, I'll kind of go into the love of the Father. Because I think that's something that we don't really think as much when we think about the verses in the New Testament. And I think it's really important for us to understand and appreciate the fullness of the Calvary where we kind of look at all three Trinity working at the same time. So let's go to the next one, the love of the Father. So as we consider the love of God, we often place the most of our emphasis on Christ, which is not a bad thing. So let's think, think about John 3, 16, 1. That's everybody's familiar. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and when we think about this verse, like usually the first thing that comes to our mind is what the Son has done in giving Himself. But I think what we, what we did not, uh, what we missed out a lot of times in this verse that we memorized throughout our childhood is the work of the Father here, the work of God the Father in sending the Son. And we think about this um, verse 2 in John 3, 16, when John wrote this verse, he said, For God so loved the world. Like the main emphasis here is actually the love of God the Father. Because he will say, For God, this God, he's referring to God the Father, so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And so, like, I would want, uh, I want to remind you guys that um, in all this, Christ is out, it's really important too, but it's what, what I'm trying to emphasize here is uh, the love of the Father without de-emphasizing the love of Christ himself. Mm-hmm. And I think like, uh, having an error, erroneous understanding of the Father like a kind of cuts the gospel by some portion. It, like understanding the love of our Father helps us to appreciate the cross even more, I would say. And I'll tell you, like, uh, throughout centuries, there's a couple of uh, examples. Like, most of the time when we think about uh, God the Father, we probably think about um, a picture of Christ pleading with God the Father. Oh, God the Father, don't be angry, don't kill them. <laughs> or if not, like, uh, we think of this uh, popular sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And when we think about that angry God, <laughs> who we think about, it's probably God the Father, isn't it? I think it's interesting, too, because in uh, Sozo, one of the big ones that we come across a lot of times is when people's relationship with God the Father. A lot of people describe God the Father as uh, the statue of Lincoln. Very cold, very far, very distant. And like, uh, the first time I got, 
when I heard about that during the training series in the Sozo, I was like, oh, what, what is the statue of Lincoln? <laughs> like, what's that? Why everybody says that? Like, uh, then Amber shows me a picture. I was like, oh, I see. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. That's exactly what I'm thinking too. <laughs> so let's take a look at a couple of verses here. Let's turn back to Romans 8, verse 32. Our theme verse, okay, we can keep our fingers on that. In Romans 8, verse 32, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so we're going to take a look at the context of this verse. Verse 32, he said, He who did not spare us, who's the he here? God the Father, right? It was God the Father who did not spare his own son too. That's an important role that's playing here. And take, let's take a look at a few more verses. Uh, let's, let's turn to our familiar verse, John 3, 16. It says, For God so loved the world. The God, for God, the God here is God the Father, right? Yeah. And also in... Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, it's talking about the suffering servant. And in Isaiah 53, in verse 4 through 6, he says, Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God. And again, this God here is God the Father, right? And also in verse 10, it also says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And again, one more time here, who is, who is Isaiah referring to? It was the will of the Lord. The Lord here is God the Father to crush him, Christ. And another one in New Testament, in Acts 2 verse 23. It's uh, when Peter is delivering his message. In 2 verse 23, it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And here you can see that guy. It's referring to the foreknowledge of God, God the Father. And so I think it's interesting because uh, what we see here is the apostles, John, Peter, Paul, when they write about these verses, like the person that they're thinking in their mind was God the Father, the love of God the Father. They are not putting his, his love outside the camp, but he's including it in the whole picture. And I think it's, uh, the emphasis here is interesting too because they emphasize it quite a, lot, quite a bit too. And because it is important. So, so I think it's interesting when we think about in this whole uh, picture on the cross, what the father felt. So let's take a look here. And we know in Genesis 22, uh, I guess, yeah, the next slide, that's great. In Genesis 22, what we see here is uh, the picture of uh, Abraham going up to Mount Moriah, sacrificing Isaac. And when we talk about this scene, like the first thing that comes to our mind, it's 
Abraham going to sacrifice his son, how Abraham would have felt. But oftentimes when we think about this passage, we don't really think about the parallel of how God the Father felt when he sacrificed, when he delivered Jesus up. You see the, the emphasis on Genesis 22 when Abraham sacrificed, going to sacrifice Isaac. It's a lot about him. And I think in the same way, I think when Christ went to the cross, we also have to think a lot about how God the Father felt as he delivered up Christ up to his captors. And in 2 Samuel 18, verse 33, uh, it's uh, Absalom. And uh, in Absalom, what he did was uh, he rebelled against David. He wanted to take David's kingdom for its own. So he hunted David down for many years. And Absalom was his son. So it's, it's kind of a sad scene. And uh, of course, Absalom caused a great deal of distress and trouble to David. But I think what was interesting in this verse, in 2 Samuel 18, verse 33, it's when David talked about Absalom, while well, rather like after the Epsilon, his hair got cut, <laughs> and he died on the tree. Like um, the commander of David came to report the death of Epsilon to David. And when David heard it, he, he wasn't happy at all. I think it's interesting. Let's turn there and let's take a look. Second sandwich. Let's see what his reaction was. 18, verse 33. And in verse 33, it says, And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So I think it's interesting when we think about this because even though Absalom hated his father, he wanted to betray, he wanted to take the kingdom over from him for himself, but when Absalom died, like David was pretty upset. He was really, really sad. And I think like how much more for Christ, isn't it? You have this uh, rebellious son that his father wept for him deeply. But how about Christ, who is an obedient son? Like how much more would the father have felt then, isn't it? And I think it's interesting because when we think of Christ on Calvary, when Christ was on the cross, it's the pinnacle of its obedience. I would say like there's never one moment in history or rather the ministry of Christ that uh, God the Father was more proud of his son. It was at the cross. But what we see here is uh, at this moment, God the Father has to deliver his son up to death. And when we think about this, like, uh, think about how God the Father would have felt at this moment. And there's a lot of parallels in it like, uh, when we think about uh, if you're a father and you have a son, at your son's most proudest moment, like he did everything you have told him to. And it is the pinnacle of his success. Like as he come to you, like all you have to tell him is, 
uh, you have to go to, you have to die. You have to put the weight of all the punishment upon him. And then let's continue on to take a look at the preciousness, preciousness of the son to the father. <clears throat> so let's take a look at John 10, verse 15. Let's examine the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Because I think like, uh, with all the um, examples we can give, there's probably not one example that will be sufficient enough in our world that what we can think of that can describe this relationship between the Father and the Son, the deepness of this relationship. And so in John 10, verse 15, It says, Jesus says, Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And when we take a look, at, when we think about this word here, know, uh, it's uh, the word uh, nosco. And when we think about the use of this word in the New Testament, nosco, it's, it's pretty different from um, what... Yeah, what we, are, what we are thinking of when we say, oh, I know this person. Because when we look at how the Bible uses this, uh, this word also comes from the Hebrew uh, yada, know. So when we think of this word, uh, some of the examples in the Old Testament, like uh, one example, it's when Adam knew Eve. So you see, like, it goes a lot deeper than the way we think about know. Like when we say, like, I know John, there's a level of knowledge. But when the Bible uses this word know, there's a whole wealth of meaning. It's beyond just, it can be like just knowing the person, but it can also mean a lot deeper, knowing it to the extent that it can give birth. So that was also a know, like a very intimate knowledge intimate version of knowing. It goes very, very deep. Like a, you know the person from inside out. And that's sometimes how the Bible uses this word nosco or genosco. And so what we see here is like when Christ says, I know the Father and the Father knows me. Like you see this kind of intimate relationship between the Father and the Son here. And in verse 30, in John 10, verse 30, it says, I and the Father are one. Like when you say, like, uh, if I said to John, I and you are one, that's a little strange because it's like a, we are joined together. Like, to, that means when I say that, there is like, a, I know everything about you that that's ever has to be known. And when we talk about this, like a way we, when God uses I and the Father are one, like this is another hint of how, the relationship between the Father and the Son. Like they are so closely connected they, that they are really are one, pretty much. And I think it's also interesting when we think about the public announcement of Christ from the Father, like, like when doing his baptism. For Christ, God the Father said, what did he say? He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And uh, in the transfiguration, another time God the Father said to uh, uh, Peter, he says, like, uh, this is my son. This is my beloved son. 
listen to him. And another time where um, Christ, after the triumphant entry, he go inside to the city, uh, he began to pray to God. And God also said something similar in the public announcement. They said, this is my beloved son. This three times. And when we think about John 1, 1, 2, in the beginning was the Word. The Word, the word was with God, and the Word was God. And we see this closeness once again. And uh, so, so I think like, uh, when we think about Romans 8, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, it brings a lot more significance here when we think about the love of the Father and this kind of separation that they have to go through, it's immense and unimaginable and unexplainable to us in any ways. But I think beyond that, uh, there's something even more. As we go into the next slide, we talk about the abandonment of the Son. So as if it's not already enough... Um, That God the Father has to deliver up his own son. He has to abandon him. Like he has to also scourge him. But let's take a look at the abandonment of the son. So on the cross, what man sees Christ as, he sees, he, they, see, they saw Christ as another criminal when he was on the cross. But to the Father, it's totally different because to the Father, what he sees is Christ as his son. If, like, uh, let's think about David and Absalom, but to a thousandth degree, to an nth degree. And who was the one that delivered Christ to the captors? It was God the Father himself. And can you imagine like, uh, this whole context here? Um, the God who... The father who loved the son so much has to deliver his son up for death to his captors. It's almost to a certain extent you would say like, uh, like God the father was the person that's responsible for the death of his son. And he, he knows it himself and that makes it even more challenging and again, we see that the father is deeply proud of his son. As we uh, recall the couple of uh, public announcements, wherever Christ did something in a certain stage of his ministry, like the father always say, this is my beloved son. It's as how a proud father would say, this is my beloved son. Look at what he's doing. And God the father loved to praise the son too. He loved to acknowledge the son. He loved to praise him for what he has done, for what he has accomplished. But yet at the cross, at the pinnacle of Christ's obedience and ministry, you see Christ on the cross, like, uh, what, what did he say as he was uh, about to give up his spirit? It said uh, the Aramic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think it's interesting. Of course, it's a quote from Psalms 22. Uh, yeah, let's, let's take a look at Mark 15, verse 34. That's that account there. 
In Mark 15, verse 34, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I thought it was because also interesting when you think about Christ, wherever he talks to God the Father, in his prayer, he always says, my Father, my Father. He always begins, oh, my Father, it's this. Oh, my Father, please do this. But at this moment, he says, my God, my God, as he takes on the sin of the world. And I think that's significant, the change from my Father to my God. And the father here, he could not stand to look at Christ anymore too because Christ has become sin for our state. And uh, let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It says in verse 21, for our sake he, was made, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And let's also take a look next at God the Father delivering up the Son. So Christ was delivered to the enemies, again, by the Father. And we saw that in Acts 4.28. And in Romans 8, verse 32, and it was the father who delivered this, his son up to his captors. And it was also the will of God, and it was the will of the father to do so. The, the son that he loved deeply, he has to deliver him up. And let's take a look at uh, Isaiah 53 again. Back to the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, verse 10. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord God the Father to crush him. He has put he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And let's take a look at uh, verse 11 here. Out of the anguish of his soul, like who who is the he here, right? It was God the Father. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. But I think what's what like important here, it's... Um, also, in King James Version, I like how it put it. Uh, in ESV, it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. In King James, it says, uh, uh, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. So th there's this uh, bittersweet tension here. 
because it pleased the Lord to bruise his, he pleased the father to bruise his son. And we know that the father loved his son deeply. So it's, not, it's like a complicated emotion here. Like he's bruising the one he loved the most, but at the same time, he was pleased to do so. You can see all the complicated emotions right here. Like you are really sad, but at the same time, you are also really happy. And I think it's uh, interesting because in verse 12, uh, it says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So when we think about this verse here, like a, who is God the Father? Who is God the Son doing all this for? It was for all of us, right? And I think there's a, something, an interesting parallel here too when I was uh, thinking about uh, verse 12. Therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the many. Uh, is this a somewhat, I guess, a Macrib scene uh, in Judges 19, where we talk about the concubine, the Levite and the concubine. Uh, the men of the city were so wicked that they wanted to have relations with the man in, as the visitor, the Levite. And the master of the house sent uh, uh, his, I think his uh, daughter and the concubine's wife, uh, and the Levite's concubine. And later, uh, they did whatever they want with her, and she died. And what, the, what this master of the house did was he cut up her up to 12 pieces and sent it throughout Israel. And then the, the Israel says, nothing like this has ever been seen and done in Israel before. I think it's an interesting parallel when we think about that whole scene and we think about this verse here. When we think about, therefore I'll divide him a portion with the many. In that scene, it was one of a vengeance. It was one of, like, take vengeance for me. Because like uh, the concubine died not of her own will. But when you think about this, Isaiah 53, verse 12 here, it was uh, the son who died of his own will. And his uh, benefits and the blessings was divided to, to different portions to everyone of his own kind. Of, of his own people. So I, think that, I thought that was kind of an interesting parallel when we think about Christ in uh, Judges 9, which you always thought it was uh, kind of like a disturbing scene. But it, I think it brings a new light in this whole story as we think about it. But also the other thing here uh, that we cannot forget, it's in John 10, verse 18, Jesus says, Nobody takes my life from me, but I give it willingly. And I think this brings another important dimension here. Like Nobody takes the life of Christ. It's not the persecutors. It wasn't uh, the Roman soldiers that nailed him to the cross. And in fact, I think it was a, there was an interesting point here that when Jesus was on the cross, uh, he, he died pretty quickly. 
Because、uh, when, the, when Jesus died, the Roman reported to Pilate and said, Oh, Jesus died. And then Pilate was, What already? <laughs>、uh, that was fast. Because what you see is that、like、in those days, like,、uh, when people die of crucifix- crucifixion, it typically takes about two to three days. When you're hung on the cross,、uh, it's either you die of a lack of breath because you got so tired that you cannot stand up. And since、uh, when you're on the cross, it, it kind of compresses your lungs, so it's hard to breathe. So people either die from, a, from lack of air because they couldn't stand up anymore, couldn't pull themselves up anymore, or people die of、uh, a heart attack、uh, just by exerting all this strength and the lack of blood in your system. And of course, there's the blood that clots, that comes up and in- introduces a heart attack. So usually it takes a few days. So, I think this is interesting because when the son said, Nobody takes my life from me, and Jesus said, like,、uh, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And that is where he gave his life. This is another place that he showed that nobody takes his life from him, but he gave it up willingly. He said, I will give my spirit now unto you, my God. And there he died. And so,、um, let me see. So, as we think about the whole cross scene here, let's take a look at the next slide in redemption of the cross. Because nothing is more horrific and unjust than the cross itself. Because it's right for the wrath of God to pour out anywhere else in the world. On us, it was perfectly fine. It makes sense because we sin. But on Jesus Christ, it is unjust. Because one place that the wrath of God should not have been poured out was on Jesus because Jesus was obedient. He was without sin. It's the, most, the greatest injustice in the world, isn't it? Like the, a person that has no sin, that obeyed 100%. Has to be punished. But let us remember again Isaiah 53, verse 10. It says, It pleased the Lord to do so. But when you think about that,、um, who would do that unless they love somebody else equally too, who would deliver up their own son for another person? And I, I would say, like,、uh, this kind of points that God. Love us equally as Christ d o And I think it's interesting because it almost sounds blasphemous to say that God loves us as much as He loved Christ. But when we take a look at John 17, let us turn to there. John 17, verse 21 to 23. It's Jesus' high priestly prayer. He said, That they may be one just as you are, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and Love them 
even as you love me. So I think this is kind of interesting. It will sound blasphemous, blasphemous to say that uh, God loves Christ as much as he loves us. If, if not for this verse that Jesus says here, that, oh, God the Father, that you love them as much as you love me. And I would say with this, like uh, with Christ willingly sacrificing himself, this completes the picture and he, he redeems the cross from injustice. And the Father in its love, he gives the Son. The Son in its love took our place in death to receive the cup of wrath. And the Spirit in its love devoted his limitless energy to apply the benefits of Christ's redemption on us continuously over and over again. And so in closing, uh, let us go back to our theme verse, Romans 8, verse 32. And let us read this with a different thinking with what we have uh, talked about so far with God's the Father's love. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of the God, who indeed is interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And this is written, For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I think it's like a really uh, immensely helpful to know the love of God. Because when we think about Christ on the cross, when he says, oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Christ did that, like I was a total abandonment from the Father. And as Christ did that on the cross, he did that so that we may never be able to say the same words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Christ stood in the place between us and God so that we might never be able to say, God, you have forsaken me. I think that's like a pretty immensely important point here too. And I think those, this, like a, all these passages that we have read, uh, there's also uh, in Ephesians 2 that Paul's talked about the love of God for us. It was uh, immensely helpful for the Christian through the various persecution in the first centuries, it's almost as if God knows that we, his people, need to understand his love. We need the assurance from him. And it goes even to today. Also, as we go through our trials and tribulations, 
Like God here through the words of Paul encourages us through his love. And in those times, like uh, in the early days when those Christians were having persecutions, like, uh, the, probably one of the main things that comes to them as they are facing the tribulations is, oh my God, like uh, where are you? Have you forsaken me? My God, like I uh, have what have what what are you what are you doing? Do you even love me? Are you even there? And all these verses, it's, it points to say to tell the Christian during that time that God is almost saying to them, Yes, I'm here, and I continue on to love you as much as I love the Son. And I think it's uh, also interesting um, when you take a look at Second Timothy. I think this is a pretty interesting verse. Second Timothy 4, verse 16 through 18. Uh, it was uh, Paul as he's beginning to stand trial in Rome. It's kind of a sad verse, but I think it's kind of encouraging in some ways because Paul knows this pretty deeply. He knows the importance of the love of God. So in Second Timothy 4, verse 16, it says... At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. As when you think about this, you think about Christ on the cross. Like as his disciples deserted him. Like a Paul, Paul, it's kind of a parallel scenario here. That like everybody has deserted him. All, all the people that he was traveling with, like none of them came with him to Rome. Nobody stand trial with him. And uh, probably in that, um, that point of time as you're standing trial in that courtroom, there's, it's interesting to think that nobody is able to give evidence or testimony of that account except for Paul because there was no Christians in that room at all. Mm-hmm. It was only Paul and Paul alone. But what he said was interesting here. He says, uh, my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me, may it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through the message might be so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And I think when we go through times of trial and tribulations, when we understand the love of God, there's kind of something that's Important, something that's foundational, because like uh, even if people desert you, even if you go through times of betrayal, we can be comforted to know that God will not desert us, that Christ has taken all the abandonment, all the forsakenness, so that we will not stand in the very same place, but instead Christ stood in the place between, so that He can intercede for us all, and as. Paul has said this, he said, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So we're also running out of time. I think like, uh, in this four minutes, let me give a quick little story. <laughs> uh, yeah, I heard this story. Uh, there was this uh, couple uh, in a certain church like they, they, it's often their ministry to take care of uh, young children. 
about foster, foster uh, like babies for a couple of months until they find a home. So it's interesting because this family, they've done it a, a lot of times, like, uh, like they do it over many years and foster many babies. But one day the children's services came and said, like, uh, there's this tween that we have. They're a little bit older, like uh, they're not like babies, babies, but we need somebody to foster them. Like, are you willing to foster them? So this couple, uh, they, they prayed about it and said, oh, yeah, like, uh, yep, we'll, we'll foster them. So uh, as in the first day, as uh, this tween boys came to their home, uh, it was interesting because uh, as they were putting this uh, tween to bed, like uh, it was, they were a little bit surprised because they didn't hear anything. So I guess typically, like uh, when you put babies to like kids to bed, you probably hear them crying or fussing or something of that sort. So they were kind of surprised, like, oh, how come there's no sound? Especially since this baby, they just came into a new home. They're probably afraid. They probably don't know what's going to happen next. And so when they look closer, they, they realize these two uh, kids, they were just crying quietly. They are just weeping in the bed by themselves. And so... Uh, it was interesting because, uh, like, through this uh, one and a half year that they were with them, as the child services people take them to their new home, what they, what they say was, um, like, this, like, this babies that um, was placed with you, it's almost miraculous because they begin to see a lot more life in this, these two kids. And say, well, what did you do? Of course, you know, it's the love of a family. It's the love of Christ. And I would say, like, uh, it's similar for us um, as Christians as we experience the love of God. It causes us to grow up normally. Like, it's foundational for the Christian living. It's foundational for the Christian experience. It's, it's foundational for Christian maturity. And it's also provide us with motivation and provide us with the assurance. And so it's pretty important to understand the love of God. And with that, I will close. So let's close in a time of prayer. Oh, Lord Father, we thank you that you have sent your son. And Lord Father, we, have, we thank you for the love that have shown us through centuries. The love that's extravagant, the love that's reckless in our eyes the love that's our prodigal, O Lord, that you have redeemed us, O Lord, your enemies, so that we may, have, we may commune with you, O Lord, so that we may come to you and we may come without fear of um, death, O Lord. For Lord, for, for Lord Jesus Christ, you have done it on the cross. And Lord, Father, that we thank you that we know that we are not forsaken. I pray all this in your name and we say, Amen. Amen.